we look at careers as a long-term thing, it would be shocking if you didn't get a bad performance review at some point. Because eventually, you're going to get into a situation that you're not good at. And instead, I used it as a motivating factor. I used it to get better at my job, to ask for more specific feedback. I've turned that around many times over since then and do a better job now. Hey, welcome to the Delivering Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and this is a show where we normalize the hardest parts about the head of growth job. My guest today really doesn't need this intro, but I'm going to do it anyways. My guest today is Adam Fishman. Adam is an entrepreneur in residence at Reforge, where he teaches multiple growth strategy and leadership programs. He's also been an executive at a bunch of high growth startups that you know of, Lyft, Patreon, Imperfect Foods, Resort Pass, just to name a few. And he also writes a newsletter at fishmanafnewsletter.com. Now, I was excited to have Adam come on the show, one, because I'm a fan, right? I have been reading his newsletter and his content. I have been a student at Reforge, although not in Adam's programs in the past. And from the outside looking in, Adam seems to know all the answers. And so I was excited to chat with him to learn more about some of the challenges that he's had in his career and the adversity that he's overcome along the way. And what I was surprised to hear in the first few minutes of us chatting is that this stuff hasn't come easy to him in that most days, even now, he says he feels like he's winging it and he was pretty vulnerable during our conversation. He shared the worst performance review that he's ever had in his career. We talked about specific times where he's felt insecure and anxious as a growth leader. We explored how he manages stress and overwhelm being at these massive high growth organizations. And he also shared a bunch of advice that he wished he could have given to his former self. So that's enough for me. Let's jump into the conversation with Adam. There's a ton of good stuff in there. Want to take a second and thank Mad Kudu for sponsoring the show. The average SaaS business has a hybrid motion these days. You know, when I was head of growth at Wistit and at Postscript, although we called ourselves PLG, there was a sales team at both companies. Both companies did some outbound. We did inbound. There was the product-led freemium or free trial motion and wrangling all that stuff to understand lead scoring and quality and PQL routing is a bear. And when I worked at Postscript, we had a Stanford PhD, had a PhD in data science, one of the smartest people I've ever met, spend weeks and weeks and weeks putting together this insane predictive model using our behavioral data to understand who was likely to convert and to upgrade. And it took weeks of doing this. We weren't really able to adjust it after the fact, and it ended up being something that was hard to maintain. And what's great is that now there's these whole suite of tools out there that can help you do this way faster. So Madkudu is typically the one that I send my clients to that if I had in my previous world, those head of growth would have made my life way easier. And what's nice is that they balance the hybrid motion really well. So if you're trying to wrangle PQLs, PQAs, and figure out lead scoring across your hybrid model, check out Madkudu. It's where I send my clients. This episode is brought to you by Novatic. If you follow me online, you know how much I believe in the interactive demo space. And that's because if you work at a product-led company that has a free trial or a freemium motion, what you see is usually a high percentage of those new users sign up, poke around for a few minutes, but never really use your product in a meaningful way. It's really frustrating. And when you survey these folks, usually they'll say, well, I just wanted to see your product in action. I'm not really ready to upload my stuff yet. And I saw this happen firsthand when I was at Postscript and at Wistia. And to solve this problem, we created an interactive version of our tool, an interactive demo. We put it on the website and we saw how effective it was to activate more signups and convert more free users into paying customers. If you're looking for help doing this yourself, check out Nevatic. 
They have a no-code editor to help product-led SaaS companies create and build interactive demos that increase conversions and activations. I recommend them all the time to my advising clients, especially right now as resources are tight and every new account matters. If you're interested in learning more, check out nevatic.com slash value. I'm going to maybe speak on behalf of the average listener. From the outside looking in, someone with your experience makes it look pretty easy, right? You share a ton of insights from your experience. You share frameworks. It's all on social media. You've got a newsletter. You're teaching a Reforge growth series. You're on the speaker circuit. I'm curious to know, has this career path come naturally to you? No. And I think like I'm pretty good at faking it. It doesn't feel easy for me. This idea of sharing out on social media and newsletters, the Reforge stuff, speaking, it's only been the last couple of years, actually. I started with Reforge in July of 2020. This is all really new to me. It's all brand new. And I don't really think there's a playbook for it. I'm just trying it out. It's experiments. I don't know if it's working or not. Time will tell, right? When I look back on it. So yeah. I think it's easy for people who are maybe watching from a distance to look at someone like you, to look at someone like Elena and think they've got information that I don't have. They're just smarter than the rest of us. And what I'm hearing you say is maybe you are, maybe you're not, but it doesn't feel that way to you. Nothing has come easy. No, I don't think I'm smarter than the vast majority of people. I'm trying stuff and I don't have a fear of if I put something out in the world, it might flop. Okay, it flops. I heard somebody say the other day to a kid who was playing basketball, like, if you miss a shot, what do you do? Do you dwell on that? No, you get back on defense. It's just reps. Just keep trying. Keep trying. And I'm curious to know what led you into the growth space? Because I know you started your career as a marketer. Really, you spent the second half of your career doing a bunch of different things, but really transitioning from a traditional marketer to a cross-functional growth lead, even some more traditional head of product type work. Was there a pivotal moment or person that kind of impacted your career journey? Yeah. I don't know that there was a person, but definitely a moment. Forever, I've been hardwired to be, even when I was a marketer, to be more of a quantitative science-based marketer. The branding stuff has never come really natural to me, but being quant focused has. That started really early in my career. Like my second job, I was building PL models and spreadsheets and doing the sort of what the modern equivalent of like growth modeling would be, but we didn't call it that in 2006. So I had a lot of those kinds of roles of just increasing responsibility in marketing and just focused on like the quantitative side of marketing. And I think I was really fortunate early in my career, I jumped on the experimentation bandwagon when like the earliest tools were coming out to be able to do that. And I was just hooked on it. I like being able to measure things and that sort of thing. And then I think the real pivotal point, honestly, was probably Lyft. So I'd done all of these things independently, quantitative marketing, product work, et cetera. And then I got to Zimride and then we pivoted to Lyft about four or five months after I joined. And then it was kind of like, well, you're in charge. You're the head of growth now. Go. How big was the company at that time? Sorry to interrupt you, but just to contextualize. Super small. I joined Zimride when it was 20 people before it was called Lyft, early 2012. Late 2011 is when I met John and Logan and started coming into the office a lot and spending time with them. And I joined the beginning of 2012. And then we pivoted to Lyft in May of 2012. The company was tiny, sub 50 people. It was early. And like 
growth wasn't a well-defined thing. Grow the business, figure it out. Marketplaces were new, like Lyft was one of the earlier marketplaces. And so like thinking about things in terms of supply and demand, which seems so dumb and obvious now, but we'd never described drivers as the supply of the system and demand. And I actually said that for the first time at the company. I was like, we've got an economic challenge here. And people were like, oh, that's really interesting. That doesn't sound very interesting now. But at the time, no one had ever talked about it in that way. And so that was the pivotal point, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, there wasn't anyone looking over my shoulder telling me what I needed to do. So I had to figure it out. It was sink or swim. Two, growth was new. So it was what I wanted to make of it. And three, the company was just on such a tear that we got to lean into something that had insane product market fit and just accelerated even further. I messed up quite a few times, but it didn't matter because the business was still going forward. And when we were successful, it mattered 100x more. And so I like really learned a lot about getting a lot of shots on goal and a lot of reps because it was just do all the time. So that was the thing that got me hooked on working on growth and product. I didn't have as fully formed an opinion as I do now, but it was the thing that like introduced me to it. So that was the pivotal moment. And that was a decade plus ago now, which makes me feel really old. And when you were there, did you know it would become one of those companies? And for context, I worked early at HubSpot. I was there like in 2011 when it was 175 people or something like that. And we used to think, hey, maybe this would be one of those companies. Did you all talk like that? I don't think so. I think we had a healthy amount of skepticism and humility. I really liked the people that I worked with and I thought they were super smart and very driven and just genuinely good human beings. And I felt like if we just work on this long enough, we're going to figure something out. It wasn't going to be Zimride. Like Zimride was just not a good business, even with the right people. But we had the right people. And so we could pivot and launch something that was somewhat related, but a different business model, a different transaction model, and different habit forming. But I think once we were going, it started to feel like this thing's got a lot of momentum. It was my first true, really early stage startup. And so I didn't know what to think. I'm not a VC. I don't know how to evaluate these things. I mean, maybe I have a better sense now. But yeah, we also didn't have a lot of time to just stop and smell the roses and like, put our feet up and be like, hey, look, look at how great we are. Like Everyone was just like running at 110 miles an hour the whole time. So I don't think we knew. Well, the other thing I would say about this is until I left Lyft in mid to late 2014, I didn't have an appreciation for just how much I had learned in the time there because it felt like I was running on this never-ending treadmill. And then when I stopped and I started to peek inside of other companies, I was like, wow, I've solved all these problems already once. I learned a ton through osmosis, even just being there. So that was an interesting thing. I don't think I appreciated it enough in the moment. What's one of the learnings that you've taken with you? And maybe just to contextualize it, less of a growth playbook and maybe more about the job of being head of growth. The higher you go, the more of a leadership role you're in, the more it's about people and motivating people to get things done. And I think recognizing when people are in over their head on something and like how much to stretch them. And I've made a lot of mistakes in doing that, giving people way more responsibility than they could handle and then they flop and I didn't intervene or not giving them enough. As a leader, we teach this in the growth leadership program that I created with Elena. So much of that program is about the softer skills and how to like orchestrate the pieces and move the chess pieces around on the board 
and less of the tactical, I don't know how to run a Facebook campaign anymore, but I know how to find the best person who does. And I know what we should generally be doing. I don't know how to execute that anymore. You're not an executor as much when you're ahead of something. And that's like one, it can be a gut punch for people and they don't know how to evaluate their self-worth anymore. And two, it's really hard. You have to get other people to do stuff that is successful because that's what defines success for you. And that's one level removed from you. And that's it's a really challenging thing. So I think that's kind of the lesson. I managed 20-something people when I was at Lyft after having only managed two before that. And so that was the biggest thing for me was like how to lead. And I've carried that with me ever since. Yeah, totally different job, right? You get the job because of your tactical skills, because of your playbooks, because of your problem solving. And then all of a sudden you got this new job. It is a totally different thing and no one really preps you for it. It kind of just happens fast and it can be overwhelming. I, I see that all the time and I felt that myself, although on a slightly smaller scale. Switching gears a little bit, you've gone on to accomplish a lot. Chief product and growth at Imperfect Foods, VP of product and growth at Patreon, VP of growth at Wizan. Obviously we talked about Lyft. I'm curious if you've ever had a bad performance review along the way. Yeah, for sure have. And it hurts when you get them. I am like a type A, oldest kid in my family, firstborn child, generally used to being the best at something. And when somebody comes along and like takes you down a couple of pegs, that's really hard for me. I still find it hard when like somebody unsubscribes from my newsletter. And every time I publish, I lose a couple of people, but I gain a lot more. But it's painful. The thing for me, when I got a does not meet expectations score in a performance review, wasn't the end of the world. Didn't mean I was losing my job, but I wasn't doing the job. And it happened because I had moved into a new area. I was doing a bunch of work that I had very little familiarity or comfort with. And it was like 70% outside my comfort zone. Typically, I tell people, operate 25 to 30% outside your comfort zone. That's how you learn. But 70% is anxiety-inducing. Right. So you're just feeling bad most days probably at that ratio. And I knew that I wasn't doing a good job. But it was one of those things also where at an earlier stage company, you don't get a lot of help and support. And so I was busting my ass. But we weren't getting the results. I was managing and also acting as an ICPM while managing a bunch of other product teams as an executive. And I had a really tough job of the ICPM. Like My engineering manager counterpart was horrible to work with. And I was basically told that was my problem, that I wasn't managing them well, that I wasn't doing the job of the ICPM well, and that it was my job to get them to like deliver better. And it was really devastating for me because my point of view being down in the weeds with this person was like that they weren't necessarily the right person for doing that job at this company. And they had different expectations because they come from a much bigger company and things like that. And so in the end, I was vindicated on this. But for several months, I sat with this bad performance review that was like, you're not getting enough out of your team and you're not doing enough. And I was like, oh, that really hurts. Some people, I think, tuck their tail between their legs and go away. If we look at careers as a long-term thing, it would be shocking if you didn't get a bad performance review at some point. Because eventually, you're going to get into a situation that you're not good at. If you're pushing the envelope, 
and some people can let that feedback like demotivate them and get all grumbly about it and be like, well, I'm going to take my toys and go home. And instead, I use it as a motivating factor. I use it to get better at my job, to ask for more specific feedback. I've turned that around many times over since then and do a better job now. And I think the other piece of it that has helped me is getting a bad performance review has made me more empathetic to people who maybe I have to give tough feedback to. And I can tell them, I have been on the other side of this table and here is my story and here's what I did about it. And it's designed to be helpful, not career limiting. So that's my story. And you shared something that I think is really good advice, which is if and when, because it's more of a when than an if, when you get a bad performance review, you can use it as motivation and use it to get better. And so you said one of the tactical things that you did to try to get better was that you asked for more feedback. Can you share a little bit more and maybe some advice for other folks who maybe are on the other side of this? How should they go about doing that? Yeah, I think one of the things about being type A, hard-driving, first-born child is I wasn't used to asking for help. And I was used to just solving all of the problems on my own. And I especially realized this now as an advisor, I didn't have all the answers. And so I started to do a better job of bringing my challenges to my manager and saying, I'm actually stuck here. Normally, my approach would be to bring you three solutions and workshop these with you, but I don't know what to do here. And just being more vulnerable about that and working through the problem together, as opposed to trying to solve it myself. I realized that it helped me address it earlier instead of letting it fester and get worse. So that's my advice to folks. You don't want every minor problem that you encounter to be your manager's problem. That's not the job. But if you're really struggling with something and you don't know how to solve it, bad news doesn't get better. So you might as well let somebody know and ask for support and how you work through it. Ask for who else can I partner with that could help me if you don't have the time. That's my advice, especially if it's going to make you better at your job. It's interesting. We have these moments in our career where really this is what growth feels like, career growth, right? When you grow a company, you run experiments and failing as part of the process to getting better. But when we think about our careers, it has a heavier weight because it's a hit to our identity, right? Who we are and where we work and the t-shirts that we wear and the mugs we drink that have the company. It's a big part of who we are as people. And so I think sometimes we forget that to build up bigger than you are. Sometimes you need to have these moments. I'm curious, one more question on this and then we can move on. For someone who finds themselves in this situation, 70% of the work that they're doing is outside their comfort zone. They don't feel good, but they don't know how to get out of that or work through it. What advice would you have for someone in that situation? Yeah, I, in my career, have sought some external coaching or mentorship from other people. I think one of the things that people expect, maybe falsely, is that their boss is going to provide all of this to them. And the reality is that that's not how it goes. I am a boss. I don't have time to do a ton of hands-on coaching with individuals on my team all the time, especially if they're like 70% out. I can do tweaks if they're 10 to 30% outside. I can help. But if it's that far afield, asking for external help, this is where bringing on advisors can work. This is where trying to find kind of like a personal advisory board of people that you check in with 
one time a month. This is where communities are great. You can ask candid questions, get good advice. I give a lot of advice in some other product communities and growth communities. Hopefully it's helpful. It seems like it is to folks. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. And so my advice there is to seek out or ask for additional third-party mentorship and coaching. That's something that I wish I knew when I was mid-level in my career. Five years in, I wish I knew that. Because I had one manager who also coached and mentored me just as part of our relationship. But really, that's the exception. That's not typical, and especially not typical if you work at early stage tech, right? You're not going to get that from your manager. A lot of times it's a first-time manager. And even if it's not a first-time manager, they're doing the player coach thing and they're overwhelmed too. And so that's really good advice as someone who does that. So I spend my days coaching and mentoring other people who are junior me's. I talk to a lot of folks who feel like they're in over their heads. Maybe they're in an environment like what you described, but they're not able to use it as motivation and they start to question everything question themselves, their self-worth, they second-guess their decisions. Have you ever gone through a period of time in your career when you had a situation that made you feel a little insecure in your abilities? All the time, still now, to this day, I'm working in new areas where I'm thinking, huh, I haven't necessarily done this exact thing before. I try to reach for frameworks and look for some of the things that I've done in the past that look like this. First serious growth job at Lyft, for sure, was way over my head in the beginning. I was doing everything that you do at a startup. I was leading the growth team, managing a really large team. I had 20 people who I was responsible for. I was expanding to 75 cities, very little time for internal mentorship in the company. The founders were busy. Everyone was busy. Growth wasn't well understood yet. And we had this giant behemoth we were competing against in Uber who was ruthless with the tactics that they would deploy and just had no qualms about doing the most abhorrent stuff. I think they've gotten better about this lately. Can you give one example just because I don't know. I'm East Coast tech. Share maybe one example. It doesn't have to be the worst thing. Oh, it's all well written about in Mike Isaac's book, Super Pumped, but I lived through it. So an example would be they had an entire company offsite global gathering specifically designed to figure out how to take down Lyft. They like flew in people. They had a whole like multi-day thing. They would get into cars that were Lyft cars and they would recruit drivers in the ride and offer them just insane incentives because they knew that we were finding these diamond in the rough drivers that had a personality and their whole goal was to commoditize it. And we were trying to create a better experience. So they would do things like that. They would learn that we were launching in a market. And the night before we were going to launch, they would announce that they were launching, even if they had no cars, just to take the air out of our sales. Some of the stuff was like just in the spirit of competition above board. Plenty of things didn't feel very above board. They built API like Scraper that would literally open up the Lyft app, move the position around the map and capture the cars that were showing up and then try and send that information back to Uber so that they could build a map of where all of our drivers were and when. 
which is just like cool engineering exercise. I mean, we found out about that and then we started feeding them fake data, which was really fun. It's crazy how I think scared they were of the uniqueness of what we had built. And there's so much more that's been written about that I won't go into, but those are the kinds of things. When I was early at HubSpot, shit like this used to happen with Marketo and with Eloqua and with Pardot. Not to this extent, or at least if there was to this extent, I was too junior to know, but all kinds of shysty stuff. I'm sure there's a few folks listening who have been through stuff like that. And you know, I'm friends with a lot of the Uber folks now still, but it doesn't make it any less painful that it happened when it did. I'm actually going to a wedding this weekend with a few folks that are first 50 at Uber. So I'll give them some shit for you. Please do. Please bring them <laughs> copies of the book. All right. So you're in this environment. There's a lot of shysty stuff going on. Even with that, your team is growing, the company's growing, everything's going fast. So tell me a little bit more about your self-dialogue when all this is happening. Are you starting to feel overwhelmed? Are you starting to worry that the company's going to outgrow your skill set? Give us a little bit more into what's going through your mind. I was at Lyft from 20 people to pretty close to 500. The business went through a lot of transformations in that time. One, pivoting to an entirely different business from Zimride to Lyft. Two, going sort of city by city. Three, me not reporting to the founders anymore. And sort of moving past this idea that you can't know everybody at the company anymore. One of the challenges that emerged for me that gave me a lot of anxiety was I'm not an overtly political person. There's a game that you have to play as companies get bigger. It sucks for somebody who's not into playing that game, but it happens everywhere because of just human nature. My self-dialogue became much more about like, geez, how do I find a way to work with this person who clearly has a set of motivations that is different from mine? or a compass that might be different than mine. It gave me a lot of stress. I had a coach at the time, an executive coach, who I still talk to from time to time. I wrote a blog post about, or newsletter article about coaching, and she was featured in it. That was a topic of conversation a lot. We brought into Lyft a lot of people who were very aggressively oriented folks, and I'm not that way. And so I had to lean into that characteristic, which meant that every day I came home from work, I was exhausted because I was trying to amp up this part of my persona just to try to survive and thrive there. That wasn't normal for me. And how did you do that? I'm actually really curious about this because this is something that I did working with a professional coach. So I'm curious to know how you put on this version of yourself. Well, one was just understanding what I had personally and professionally and what I brought differently. So I did this color finding exercise that was like, Adam, you're generally you know, a blue and a whatever, which is actually more close to engineering. And then it was like the people that you work with and your boss are a red, which is what you get out of sales. And so then it was like, at home, you are this. At work, you are this. Look at how much higher your red is when you're at work. And I was like, oh, that's why I'm exhausted every day when I get home. It's not just the startup grind. It's that I'm having to be a different person in, at work. And so I worked through a lot of like, how do you work with a person whose default is red? How do you amp up your candor and directness? How do you amp up your ability to, in many cases, kind of create conflict, push for what you want? Just a lot of reps of that sort of stuff. And I don't know that I was perfectly successful. I think it has made me be a more aggressive person in other companies. And then sometimes now the feedback that I get is like, oh, wow, you're a little too intense. And I'm like, 
well, shit, it's just what I learned over here. I'm just doing what I thought what you were supposed to do. But I think one of the things that I learned through all of this is there is a way to be who I am and to be successful. Because I have demonstrated that at many, many, many companies. Being myself, I don't have to be a different person at work. One of the things I say in my like user manual about myself is that I'm a jovial person. I like to have fun. But don't mistake that for not wanting to win. I also am very competitive. And it is possible to be both of those things at once. It's possible to be a nice human being and want to achieve goals and have high standards and expectations and be direct and things like that. And so just working on that a lot is what got me there. And getting baffled in conversations where I got circles run around me and I would take that back to my coach and be like, here's the scenario. What did I do wrong here? And we workshop that. And so there's a lot of practical workshopping of the times that I messed up and then occasionally the times that I got it right. And through a lot of repetition, I learned. I'm really glad that you shared that because I think that there's a lot of folks out there who are maybe in their first leadership position or second leadership position and they encounter that adversity and then they just think, well, I must suck at this because this isn't going well and all these other people are doing it successfully. It must be me. And what I heard you say is that it doesn't happen by accident. It might happen for some folks. It might just be the right cultural personality fit. But for a lot of us, we need to be really intentional about who we show up as and how we interact with other folks, especially at the leadership level. And so what I heard you say is you started to get really intentional about showing up in the way that company needed you to be. And so how have you found the balance? Because I think this is the elusive thing that we're all looking for, which is how can I be myself and still be successful? It's a good question. I think the first thing that I do is pretty clear upfront in the interview process of like, I know who I am. Here is the boss that you are getting. If I'm working with a CEO, I'll say, this is the person that you're hiring if you're hiring me. These are the things that I'm really great at. This is my personality style. Here's my user manual if you want to learn. But if you want me to be this other person, that's not who I am. So you should hire somebody else. I realize that is a privileged position to be in. I realize that sometimes I'm selling myself out of an opportunity. But to me, it is worth it to get into the right opportunity. It's just being clear about what I will bring to the work and what I won't bring so that you know what you're buying, right? Let me tell you what you're going to get on the packaging here. And if I find that it's deviating from that, you know, I'll have that conversation with the person who hired me. I've had to do that a few times where I'm like, this isn't the job that I signed up to do. So let's talk about if your expectations are changing or if the goalpost is moving or something like that. And sometimes that means it is, and I'm not the right person anymore. And that's okay. And I've put that back into my calculus for the next time I'm talking to a company. So again, this repetition, just being candid and upfront with people about what they're getting and letting them decide, I want that or I don't want that. I love that you do this. When does this happen in the process? Are you calling your own round? <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good question. I usually do it pretty early on when I'm talking to a CEO or a founder because it's part of what should go into their calculus of whether they're going to like working with me or not. And so I don't necessarily do it in the first conversation, but certainly in the second conversation, and once I know that there's a little bit of a spark there, I'm very clear with that because I would rather not waste a bunch of time 
everyone's time is expensive, even if you're not a senior person, like it's opportunity cost. And so I'd rather get all that out on the table as early as possible so that they can decide. Sometimes that means I say something and they're like, huh, I don't agree with that. That's not what we want. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. We'll move on. And again, I realize it's a privileged position. I have more opportunities to choose from. There's more demand for my time than there's supply of Adam. I wish that weren't the case. But yeah, it's just being honest, being honest as early in the process as possible. I don't walk in the first 30 seconds and be like, and here's who I am and here's what I need and but it's all about me. No, I want to understand who they are because maybe I don't even want to have a second conversation because I can figure this out in asking them questions. That's how I approach it. But early, early is better than late for sure. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be too late on that kind of stuff. So one of the common themes in your career is that you've been at some high growth companies. And one of the gifts at a high growth company is that you get to try a lot of stuff and you get to grow. And the downside is that the pressure, in my experience, typically grows alongside that. And for some of us, that pressure can build to a boiling point and might cause anxiety and stress and might create some sleepless nights. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, yeah, a ton. And probably one of the reasons that I've taken a break from really full-time operator roles was at my last gig at Imperfect Foods, chief product and growth officer. I joined in the peak of the pandemic. Everything was breaking. To get that big, you have to really accelerate your technology and a lot of things. And we were not in a position to do that. And so on top of that, COVID was raging personally. My kids were home from school. My young kids were trying to do homeschooling. And at the time I had almost kindergartner and like a first or second grader. We had a horrendous wildfire season in California. So you like couldn't go outside because of COVID or lack of fresh air. This business was going insane. We had a bunch of dysfunction at the leadership level, like a lot of inability to work together, a lot of politicking, things like that. It was terrible. And I said I was going to give myself a year, about six to 10 weeks into it, I was like, hmm, I don't think this is going well. I think I made a wrong call. It'd be like three to six months. I was like, still pretty sure I made the wrong call. But I was like, I'm going to give it a year. I'm going to give it a year. It's going to be great. If I can't figure this out in a year, I will think that it is not me. It is them. And I will move on. And I gave it a year and I moved on. But it was super tough. Again, because of all the external stuff that was happening, the internal pressure to grow, constantly everyone wondering like, well, is this COVID, pre-COVID? No one can predict the future with what's going on. Are we making the right decision on where we're investing? And it's like, maybe, maybe not. It's impossible to tell. We won't know for a while. It was not easy by any stretch. It was just like a cacophony of pressure. It was like an instant pot. I did not feel great about that time. It was very stressful. And so what do you do when you get to that place? How do you recenter yourself? Because I'm sure that a whole bunch of folks who are in with different details, but might be feeling similar. For me, I opted out of it. I said, look, the work I've done here is great. And I don't like this environment. I need something else because of the stress and the anxiety is going to cripple me. When I left, as when I started being an EIR at Reforge. And it was transformative for me. It was a different pace. I found a new thing that I loved, facilitating, running cases, teaching, building 
programs. Like it's just a thing that I never knew that I would like. And it brought me a lot of happiness and the people were great. And I didn't have to deal with political executives. So that was my way of recentering was opting out and trying something different. Talk about this like three phases of your career. And I had entered the optionality phase of my career. And I chose to pursue that. But I wasn't sure that was going to happen. Like When I started with that, I interviewed a bunch with a bunch of other companies as CPOs, president roles. And I would get really far in the interview process. And then all of a sudden, it was like I had cold water splash in my face. And I would be like, I'm not interested in this. I don't want to go back and do this. I'm not ready for it. And so that was my thing was like doing a lot of introspection also and just being like, what is going to bring me happiness? Can I make it work independently, controlling my own destiny? Different stress for sure. Am I happier about that stress? And the answer is yes. Not everyone can just peace out of their job. So I think my advice for those folks is you can't peace out from your job, but you do have to decide if this is a place where things are going to change and if you can affect that change or if it is time to look for something new where the environment is different. No environment is perfect, but there are some that are better or worse than others. And so that's why I was like, well, in the first three months, oof, this is rough. And then I was like, you know what though? I'm going to try. I'm going to try some different approaches. I'm going to try building different relationships. And then I was like, okay, I gave it a good try for a long time and it is not going to change. And it's actually getting worse. And it is now time for me to go. You have to look in the mirror and say like, is this going to change? Can I make it change? And what would be necessary of me to help us get there? Will people actually be receptive to feedback and want to make adjustments in how things are going or no? And you have to kind of figure that out on your own. I'm curious if you could go back in time, if you would prioritize different skills to help your growth career go smoother than it has. And if so, what those skills might be. I think if I knew some of the stuff that I know now around growth modeling and how to like break down growth problems into very specific and measurable and movable levers. And this is the advice that I give everyone now. Know that. <laughs> Figure out that. Figure out how to map your growth model, even if it's rudimentary, so that you can align people on where we should be spending our time and what we expect to achieve if we do that, and then go do that work. And the reason that I find that is really important is because oftentimes when I work with companies, they have not done that work yet. And they just have a whole bunch of spaghetti that they want to fling at the wall. Ideas are a dime a dozen. And so when I come in and we actually go through the exercise of building out that model and grounding ourselves in reality, a lot of those ideas fall off the list because they just don't make sense anymore. And so I think one of the things in growth is that it can feel very frantic and very fast paced and very like, ah, what's the latest, whatever. But ground yourself in the model of how the company should grow and use that as your guardrails to say no to a bunch of tangential things. And I didn't know how to do that early in my career. And so if I could go back and do that, 
then, I think it would have changed a lot. I would have wasted a lot less time. I would have been clearer about the right fit for my skills. So a lot of things would have been different. I probably would have chosen a few different companies as a result. I don't have any regrets. I think it's all been a learning experience. But that's part of the reason I teach is so other people can shortcut those mistakes that I made because they're painful. So it's better to not make them, see other people who have made them, and do something different. Make some different mistakes. Yeah, make some different mistakes and then teach people about those. And if folks want to learn from your mistakes, what's the best way for them to do that? Right now, it's probably my newsletter, which is fishmanafnewsletter.com. That's my last name, my initials, newsletter.com. I just crossed 7,000 subscribers to that newsletter recently. I just rebranded it. I'm starting to increase the frequency of my writing, try to have a piece come out every week. And I'm telling a lot more stories about other people, failure stories, just to normalize it and help people learn. And so that's a good spot. It's free for now. It will probably always have a component that is free. I don't know what that's going to look like eventually, but for now, very free. And so I would encourage people to take a look. We'll put a link in the show notes. And if they were to connect with you on social, what's the channel you're most active on? Most active on LinkedIn, probably these days. Have yet to be a TikToker. I'm worried about getting sucked into the vortex of TikTok. Plus also, who knows what's going to happen in the future of that business? Might get banned everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? I don't think LinkedIn's getting banned anytime soon. But LinkedIn's a great place to follow. You can follow me. I would say I accept most connections. I try to avoid people who are trying to sell me something. I'll accept it and then block them later. So that's my deal. They go for the cold pitch. Thank you for coming on, sharing your stories, being a little bit vulnerable for us. Appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I like talking about this stuff. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I, I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.